Thanks for joining us for this Views and Brews podcast, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm Rebecca McEnroy with KUT, and tonight we're going to be talking about the glorious field of sound design, which is changing quite rapidly. With me tonight, Sam Lippman. He's a composer and sound designer. He's currently working on Richard Linkletter's new film and a play that we just mentioned. And Sam and I have gone back quite a few years when you were playing music right here at the Cactus. But welcome, Sam, and thank you for coming out. Thank you, Rebecca. Yes, big round of applause for Mr. Littman. <laughs> also, this is a man you have probably heard his name mentioned and his voice over the last 20 years on KUT and never have put a face to this. Um, he does incredible work at the station and he has for many, many years. He produces all of the Sonic IDs, um, the arts eclectic spots, get involved spots. Anytime you need something cool edited or put together, like the intros to Two Guys on Your Head or to the podcast, The Secret Ingredient, Mike will whip something up and make it fantastic. So, Michael Lee, in the flesh, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. You're welcome. It's I'm, like pulling teeth to get you to come out. <laughs> I was surprised that our other guest agreed to come do this on her due date, because I barely agreed to come do this. And I am not pregnant in any way. <laughs> I really think that you just invited me because we sit in adjacent cubes at KUT. This is true. Yeah. I can't talk about Views and Brews too much without saying, we just do a show with me? That is actually exactly how this happened. You just said, oh, we should do a show on that. Do you want to be on it? And I was like, I guess if you're going to do it, maybe. The next thing I know, three weeks later, the promo's on the air. <laughs> and my name's on it. So I have He's to a good it. sport because he's Careful leaving for vacation. For. I am this leaving for vacation tomorrow morning, very early. <laughs> exactly. Well, I would love to hear just a little bit of um, some of the things that you guys are working on right now. But before we get started, how did you get into this field of sound design? You know, what, from your childhood, what were some of the sounds that you remember and what started you down this crazy path of radio, audio production, composition, and sound design? Sam? I was originally a music lover, musician. I just, I loved playing in orchestras when I was a kid. And then I sort of moved towards jazz and did that in New York for a couple of like eight years and then tried rock music for a while. And um, I went back to school to do a, a, a master's in composition. and. Literally to pay the rent, I would take, I would take doing a play. That was one of the jobs I did. That my first play, they needed someone, a couple hundred bucks, a lot of work. But okay, I tried it, and I really enjoyed it. And it led to me thinking about music differently. Which, um, firstly, like in terms of collaboration, it wasn't anything I'd experienced working with non-musicians, working with writers and people who thought up big narratives, way beyond what musicians are usually thinking about. Um, so that was really exciting for me. Um, <clears throat> and I was also really interested in the idea of, of the world, of the sound world. So when you, could, when you begin a work, or a play or a film, you talk about the whole thing, the aesthetics of, is, you know, is it a dark film? Is it fun? Is it big? Are there a lot of characters or there's just three characters? What does it taste like? What does it look like? And coming up with musical uh, pieces along the same lines was really challenging for me. I love a challenge. Um, so I've, I haven't looked back. It's been about five years. I'm fairly new, but I'm really, really enjoying it. I'm getting to do it almost full time at this point. So, so yeah. And you come from a musical family. So was there a lot of different sound when you were growing up and people tinker, tinkering with different tunes? Yeah, it wasn't. So my dad singing in the shower was not very musical, but um, but he was a good. He was a great jazz trumpet player. So I grew up with jazz from him, and then my mother was a classical fiend who was always playing classical music on the radio. So I, in Australia, where I grew up, I would hear both all the time, and um, they were not super thrilled when I told them that I was going to be a musician. They wanted me to be a, a doctor, but. Uh, <laughs> They're still not real happy about it, but uh, <laughs> but here I am. Well, so yeah, and we're glad you you chose this field. Thank you know. you. Mike, what about you? What what led you down this path of audio production? You know, well, 
Uh, it's interesting because earlier you, you asked what led you to become a sound designer, and I don't think that I, probably until the promo that you put on the air with my name on it, <laughs> mentioned the free sound design. I don't think I really ever thought of myself as a as someone who works in sound design. Um, so, I, I, you know, I ended up in, in radio um, kind of because it was the work-study job that was available to me <laughs> many, many years ago. And it ended up being a lot more interesting than I guess I thought it might be. Uh, so, I mean, when you say that I've worked at KUT for a long time, I really have. It's really basically the only real job that I've had that didn't involve, you know, delivering pizzas or something along those lines. I started working there when, when I was in college, and uh, I, it was the only job I could find when I got out of when I got out of college. They hired me back, and in, in a very limited way for a while, and then I. Move, made that turn into a, a better part-time job and then a, a better one, a better one. And it's, it's the kind of job where you, I've been able to kind of keep doing new things. And along the way, I realized that if I learned how to do new things, uh, they'd keep me around for a while. And so I guess kind of finding ways to make the, the things that I produce, which are all audio interesting, has kept me around. And when did you start doing the Sonic IDs? I think that goes back, gosh, it's got to be almost 15 years now. They've, it's been a really long time. It's been longer than I, every, the, the last 15 years have moved really fast for me because uh, we started doing these things and uh, pretty early on I, I uh, interviewed this young lady right here on this front table for one of them and then we got married 12 years ago. <laughs> And it feels like that was about a year ago. So it's all gone really, really fast. The Sonic IDs have been around for a while. Yeah, they have. I, let's play. Does anyone know by name just what a Sonic ID is? So you've probably heard them on the air. They, they ID the station. They're about a minute long. And it's someone telling a little story about Austin or um, talking about a sound that they heard. When I first started at KUT, I was putting together these Sonic IDs with Mike. I would interview people. He's much more talented than me. So I would end up interviewing people for 45 minutes and getting a one-minute piece. He could do that much more quickly. I've gotten tape longer than that. It was, it, was it was pretty intense, you know, and it's a pretty intense process. If we could just listen to one and so we can get an idea of, of what we're talking about. Number three, Jake. Uh, I'm Caitlin, and I work at Zookeeper Exotic Pet Store. When a tarantula mates... First, you have to wait until the male matures. He has like what's called his ultimate molt, and then he's ready to go with the ladies. We put him in with a big girl, and they'll start drumming. They'll basically get their front feet and beat them against the ground, trying to call a mate. And if the female's responsive, she'll drum back at the male. And then they'll go up to each other, and the male will lift her up in kind of a rear with his front legs. And then he'll insert his little things and get his job done. And then he'll run away really fast because usually the female will try and eat the male after they've made it. Of course, we want to use the male repeatedly for different girls that we might have, so we'll try and separate them, but sometimes he gets munched anyway. <laughs> You're listening to KUT Austin. That's beautiful. I love that one. That was one that I did not record, uh, but I did... I did the final mix on it, and I'm, I've forgotten the name. We, for a little while, we had an intern who recorded a few IDs, and I think that was a story that that she had gotten, and uh, couldn't quite make it into something. So I kind of took another listen to it, and I realized it just it needed the right soundtrack. And I've today, because I know you wanted to play that one, I've been trying to remember what that piece of music is, and I, for the life of me, cannot. But I remember searching for just something that sounded right, and when I heard that one, it was just, it was just right. And that gets actually a pretty good example of where you can kind of just find the rhythm of where the story needs to kind of take a, a pause for the music to tell the story for a second and then come back. Yeah. So. And it's also an interesting example. You don't always use music in the Sonic IDs. Right, right. And when, when Sam and I were talking before the show, I said, I think we'd love to talk about the ethics of sound design. And he's like, yeah, what are you talking about when you talk about the ethics of sound design? And I said, well, a lot of times when you're recording someone's story, you want that authentic sound if they're referring to a specific sound. That's not always the case. 
But I think later on in the discussion, we'll talk about what those conversations are like between producers and editors and also what you're thinking about when you're recording a piece and how you need to present that to the public and so you can have the most authentic or, or truthful presentation of a story. Um, Sam, let's hear something from the work that you are doing currently because like Mike, you're producing pieces, you're producing soundscapes, but you're doing it to visuals, which is a completely different process. So what is, what is the process of creating a sound uh, landscape for a visual, and how does that differ from like creating a podcast or an audio piece? So I haven't really done much or any podcast. Everything I've done is to visuals so far. So Mike, you can just tell us what's different after Sam's talk. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, I got this commission recently for a play that the UT Theater and Depo the Department of Theater and Dance are doing. It's a play that is an underwater play. And uh, it's about a shark attack. It's, it's kind of scary. Although it's, there's love, there's a love story. And you end up, hopefully you end up loving the shark. That's our goal. And you want to be eaten by the shark. So... The idea was they had a, a bit of a budget this year to spend on like creating a, a very a powerfully immersive experience. And one of the things we I suggested was let's put speakers under all the seats. I kind of said it as a joke, but they said, yeah, let's do that. So now, now we have like about 30 speakers. We have them around and we have them above and then we have speakers under the seats. So... I just, I always thought to myself, I'm just going to go for it and try to create as lifelike an underwater aquarium. No, it's actually the ocean. I want to put the audience in the ocean. So I'm going to play for you what will, just the first few moments from the play, which before the actors are on stage, there should be this. If you can imagine that under your seat. It may make you want to go to the bathroom or... So when I get the cue from the stage manager, it launches into this. And then it will lead into a piece of music where all the actors come on stage and they, they're in their costume and they just walk, it's called a prelude. So I wanted to come up with something that felt underwater-ish, but also a love story. And something that descends. Anyway, it continues. Um, we had to come up with something that sounded like a shark. So that sound will be moving through speakers all around the theater and under seats. And then finally a rise into the following scene. Yeah, so that's something I'm working on. Thank you. Can you can you talk a little bit about the conversations that you have to create this? What are the conversations like between the director and the cast members, the producers? Like, how do they tell you what they want, and how do you interpret that and try to get a feel for it? So usually there's a meeting at the beginning, like a big meeting with all the creatives, the people that paint, the people that that do the lighting and then projection and the director. And we all come up with a sort of, we agree on, it, the director is the boss, but it's, it's an open conversation. Playwright is there. We talk about the aesthetic. What is the play about? Does it feel funny? Does it feel heavy? You know, where is it at? Um, it's always different. I mean, some, some directors are breathing down your neck all the time. 
and some are very laissez-faire, let you do whatever you want. This situation, I have a lot of freedom to sort of pursue my vision, so I'm really glad. I like it that way. Um, one or two meetings, and then I'll send a couple of pieces. And if the director is not too busy, because usually they are in a play, because they have two weeks to produce something massive, then uh, they'll just go with it. So in this case, a lot of freedom. But what if they say something like, I really want it to sound sad. Right. You're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I got it. Then I say, you should call someone else. Yeah. No, I don't. Um, <laughs> you know. Or do they say, I want it to sound like a mushroom growing? Like, what, what, how, how, do, how are the ways that they give you um, <laughs> some, some kind of direction? And so there's always, there's always a leap. There's, there's, you never are truly connected with your director. There's always sort of a leap in, in a blind leap of, well, is this what you're thinking? And usually it's like, no, a little, can you do this? No, and it's a process of collaboration until you come to common ground, where nobody, neither party is what they would have, their first card in their deck, but maybe the second or third card, you can sort of agree on a common ground. But there is the trick of doing, uh, it's used the word authentic before, and coming up with like authentic, something that's authentically sad or frightening, it's, it's a lot harder than, than we think. When we start out, we're like, oh, play a minor chord. Do a frowny face, you know. But they call in, there's this expression, on the nose. So when you're working in film or play, that if something's too obvious, and you're trying to sort of punch something into the audience, this is sad, bang. It just doesn't work. Like, that's the mark between a better composer and a not better composer. Like, somebody who can evoke that feeling in a new, fresh way, and it's authentic. And uh, so that's really the name of the game, Rebecca, yeah. And this, you know, it's so interesting listening to this, because as I was listening to the pieces, I was like, God, that, you know, it really is emotional, and it takes you on this ride. And Mike, you edit uh, the, the um, StoryCorps pieces, when StoryCorps comes to Austin. And I feel like you're doing the same thing, but with people's narratives and with people's conversations. Talk a little bit about what it's like to design a conversation. You don't have the music to go to. You have the conversation, the pauses, and all of these very intimate ways that you're conveying the emotion that you want to get across. How do you do that? Well, StoryCorps is a situation. You guys all know what StoryCorps is, right? You listen. Okay, <laughs> I assume One, two people <laughs> that two of you would know what StoryCorps is. You don't know what do it is? No, I don't. I'm sorry. Can you tell me? Sure. Uh, do you want to? Do you, you, do you want me? Go ahead. Okay. Uh, so StoryCorps is uh, it's an organization that uh, they travel the country. If not, they, I'm not sure if they're if they're international or not. Um, they have a booth. They invite people to come and just have conversations. So it's usually two, sometimes three people, uh, basically sitting in a converted Airstream trailer, having a conversation about their lives, about their relationships, stuff like that. Uh, all of these things are, are uh, saved at the Library of Congress, so anyone can go back and listen to them. A very few select ones are edited into short features that air on NPR stations. Um, and usually they're very heart-wrenching and, you know, they're, they're the kind of thing that make you want to pull over so you can have a little cry and you don't wreck your car. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> when, when the mobile booth is in Austin, they share all of the tape they get with us. Um, and we uh, listen to them, and it really is really is just me um, doing this. Uh, I listen to them. Yeah, we listen. <laughs> I like that we we listen, mean, you know, we as no a station me. and me as a human being <laughs> <laughs> listen to these and uh, pick some that will air just on KUT. Uh, and um, that, aside from the sound design aspect of that um that's kind of that's if you guys know StoryCorps, you know that you know like i said they're sort of designed to make you cry so um listening to hours and hours of these full interviews it's an emotional journey of a job i'm not i'm not gonna lie to you about that it's uh it can be rough um and, and honestly sometimes it can be boring sometimes you'll listen to something and it just, just nothing really interesting there. and It is not going to go on the radio. Um, but when there is, um, that's an interesting d 
job because there's very little sound design going on there, really, because you don't, there's usually music right at the end after it ends. There's like sort of a story core theme song that'll, that'll come in, but you would not, you don't mix in music to, to punch a joke or to, you know, kind of heighten the, the sadness or anything like that. And there's, there's no sound effects. It's just two people in a booth. But um, because it's not a real radio booth, but an Airstream trailer, you can sometimes hear sirens go by. Uh, that, and sometimes the siren is still going by when you need to cut and move ahead to another part. And so the little bit of sound design that comes on there is that you have to kind of uh, soften that siren or, or to, to have it not just cut off abruptly so everyone can hear that you just made an edit. Uh, it's very subtle and probably in your car you won't hear it, which as a sidetrack is another weird thing about producing audio for radio, even though it's an audio only medium, you have no control over how people are hearing it. And a lot of people are listening in their car. And I don't know how many times I've been in my, in my car and realized that over the sound of traffic and stuff, this thing that I spent a lot of time producing, you can't hear any of the subtleties <laughs> whatsoever. You know, if someone's sitting in their home listening on nice headphones, they're really going to get it all. But if they're driving down I-35, they're going to miss a lot of the a lot of the really good stuff. Like my career's been a waste. <laughs> Bad speakers. What have, I, what have I done with my life? Uh, so what the question of what was the question about well, story? The, the question is, uh, you know, how are you? How do you think about editing conversations? Because I feel as if there are so many new wonderful podcasters. Who's a podcaster here? Who does any sound designer podcasting? Like a few of you, right? So um, when I first started editing sound, this is about twenty years ago. I remember going through something with an editor. And they said, aren't you hearing that? Like that click and that this and that. And I was like, no, I really didn't hear it at all. You know, yeah. and over the years, I hear things so differently. And especially in conversation, you know, you'll hear a pause or you'll, you'll hear a breath. And that really transports you. So what are, what are some of the things that you think about you know, when you're listening that you've learned over the years that adds to the way that you are editing now? Yeah, well, in editing StoryCorps in particular, sometimes the the pause or the breath is is half of the job you know um making sure that there, there's always a temptation to edit things as tightly as possible so you're not wasting any time everything that we do at KUT uh has to fit a pretty rigid time frame story core is about four minutes so um sometimes there's a temptation to edit out any any pause in the conversation, because you know if you can shave off those seconds, I can buy you some some time for something else. But sometimes the pause is the story. You know, you need that break in the conversation when you kind of realize um, that people are are thinking or feeling something. Sometimes you can shorten it a little bit. Some, I mean, I've I've dealt with pauses that are you know thirty seconds long, and you can, that's pretty extreme for radio. But the <laughs> The sort of radio version of that is maybe four seconds, which is really long to have dead air on a radio station, um, and it kind of sells that there was a you know there was a beat in that conversation that kind of had to be there. Yeah. What about Sam? For you, the element of time. How do you work with time in your compositions? Um, I'd have to find a babysitter first. <laughs> There are so many ways to think about time. Everyone works differently. I'm a little OCD. I will spend four hours on three seconds of music sometimes if I have to. It's just, you mentioned earlier you found the right pace of music. You know, you knew when it was right. It's the same thing. I have to mess with it until it's right and I know when it's right. So um, sometimes I work very quickly um, and then sometimes not. So it's, it's really variable. Um, I try to, often I'll work really late at night, really early in the morning, whenever I can. So I, I still, I don't have the best answer for that question. Is that what you mean, work hours, or do you mean? Well, I love that that's how you took the question. <laughs> I, I do, I really do, because it's uh -oh. fascinating. I, I meant that, like, how do you work 
with time in the composition because you're squeezing these stories into an hour-long story, you know. So it's a different um, presentation of time, if that makes sense. Well, in film and and theater, most of the time that's not really that's already been decided for me. Usually, the director is like, "We want music here. We don't want it here. We want it here." So, like, okay, boss, you know. A lot of times it's a bit like being a, a, a costume designer, which is a cool job, too. Um, but if I'm working on my own compositions, uh, I really try to have courage that... If, if you just mentioned that, you know, four seconds is like the maximum. You know, with composers, we, we have a, a tendency, all musicians, to like... Keep it going, it could get boring, you know, don't let it get boring. So we tend to do, we tend to talk too much. So finding that moment that you can hold on to, as you said, that would transport a listener, you know, trying to have the courage to, to let that happen, to find this, the rhythm of the pace. And then the other thing um, that I was going to say is I, I just forgot what I was going to say. Sorry. It's okay. If it comes, it's fine. And if not, that's okay. Um, so one other quick question before we open it up for, for other questions. I want to know what you guys have learned over the years about sound design. You know, like what have you, what has really taught you lessons over the years? What types of things, what lessons have you learned in this field? You want to go first? <laughs> um, I'm not sure how many lessons that I've that I've learned. I, I do feel like um, producing sonic IDs, and this is probably true of almost anything I've produced, but this is the thing that it makes me think of. Um, a lesson that I learned uh, pretty early on was to sort of, to not pre-produce the piece in your mind before you actually go and talk to the person that you're gonna do the piece about. Because it's really tempting to feel like you know, I'm, I'm going to interview this guy, and I know what he's going to say. I pretty much know what this is going to sound like. <laughs> uh, you're probably wrong about both of those things. And it's, um, I think the thing, one of the very first pieces that we did for this project, uh, before we've been on, these things are really hard. One of the things that, that's hard about them is that they're really hard to describe to people who don't know what they are. And when we were starting it, just the idea that we wanted to find people who would talk about whatever they wanted to, that we weren't giving them the topic. It was really hard uh, for people to understand because when you ask someone to talk, they were like, well, what should I talk about? And I'm like, well, I, whatever, that's your call, <laughs> you know? Um, that was hard. So we, we wanted to do a handful to just put on the air so that people will have maybe heard one of them so they have some frame of reference. So one of the first ones that we did, we decided to talked to the guy who ran the little train in Zilker Park, the Zilker Zephyr. And uh, in my mind, I was like, this guy's gonna look like Captain Kangaroo. He's gonna be like an avuncular guy who just loves trains so much. He loves trains and kids and that's the story. And uh, none of that was true at all. <laughs> the guy, it was a nice guy, but he was a small businessman who had a job, and his job was running this train. And it wasn't, he wasn't running this train because trains are the best thing in the world. It was because... What do you mean they're not? I mean, to him, they were fine, but it's like, you know, my job is running this train, fixing this train. <laughs> that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, that's, I was completely wrong. So I just, it was really great for me that that happened because that sort of let me know that I shouldn't do that, that I shouldn't just, you know, hear the piece in my head ahead of time and then go try to make that work because that's, that's not a good way to go about it. So that's one lesson. And really quick, I, w I really would love for you to talk about, um, just recount this, this conversation you had with Alex, who's the receptionist at KUT. She's fantastic. Um, and she takes a lot of the, the mail that we get. When people say we have a sonic ID, you know, it comes through Alex first. And, and Alex got one, and she responded to it, and she responded in an interesting way. Okay, there's, so there's a few ways that you can submit Sonic IDs. Well, the official way, email-wise, is sonicid at kut.org. Um, some people, I guess, somehow know that I do them and email me directly. A lot of people email the newsroom, and then they forward it to me, and a lot of people email the general KUT 
email address, which is the one that Alex gets. So the other day I got an email that she forwarded, and usually someone will send in a Sonic ID idea, and she'll forward it to me, and usually tell me if she likes it or not. <laughs> which, which is great. <laughs> in this particular case, she liked it, but also she had left in the, the, the chain that she had had a little conversation with this guy, and he emailed and said, so what do I, do I just record this myself and send you the MP3? And she was like, no, just tell us the story, and if we like it, we'll bring you into the studio, and if it needs sound effects, we'll just add those later. <laughs> don't worry about it. And so I thanked her for forwarding it to me, but said, please don't tell people that we're just gonna add sound effects later, because I don't do that. It's, that's a weird thing. You've, you've mentioned the ethics of sound design a couple of times, and I feel like, for me, I'm not a journalist. I'm not part of the newsroom. Sonic IDs aren't really journalism, but I, I have felt, I have this like self-imposed code that um, I will add music to them, you know, when I think it works. But if someone is talking about a sound, I'm not going to go to a sound effects library and like find a similar sound, even though it would probably be fine. It would sound pretty similar to whatever I would get. I want to go get that sound. And I think the story that you're talking about is several years ago. Uh, I I wanted to record. This is another train one. I have a few train ones. <laughs> Different train guy, this is a guy who worked, and I'm forgetting his name also, um, a guy who works, or at that time, worked in a, a city office in Kyle, which was actually built in uh, like a small, um, like little deep, it was like right next to the train tracks. I think it actually might have been built in a caboose that was like just stuck next to the train tracks. So when he's working, all day, as he tells it, all day, every day, trains are coming by like two feet from his window. And he's, it's crazy, you know? And I was like, well, great, I'll come and get that. That's, that's a wonderful sound. When should I come to hear the train? Anytime. <laughs> they are nonstop. All right. Sounds good. So I head down to Kyle pretty early in the morning. I spent my entire work day in Kyle with this guy. Just, I recorded his part of it. Little side note, I do that. Uh, when it's about a sound, usually I'll record the person talking about the sound and then also the sound separately, and I'll put them together later. That part is, I'm fudging my own rules a little bit there. It's not happening in real time. That part is a lie. But, so I recorded his part, you know, I work here in Kyle, the trains come by all the time, great. Let's wait for a train. <laughs> Got my recorder ready. Um, I was there like the entire, I had lunch with this guy. <laughs> we, we ordered in from a local diner. It was good. But eventually I was like, man, I, I gotta go. I can't, I mean, this is your tax dollars at work, folks. This is public radio. I'm spending my entire day in Kyle waiting for a train. Um, so I never got the sound of the train. But later that day, <laughs> my guy in Kyle emails me and says, hey, a train came by and I recorded it. He had like a little memo recorder thing that you use, you know. I recorded on that and here's an MP3 and he sent it to me. And it wasn't a great recording, but it was the right train. It wasn't from a sound effects library. So that's what's on the piece was his, you know, little dictation pen recorder thing of the train. And uh, I guess that's like kind of my little rule is that like I'm, I'm, I'm probably less concerned with like absolute um, the best quality of audio and more sort of, you know, the realness of it. I, um, when I record people out in the field, I, I use a really small recorder instead of using like a big thing with a really nice microphone. I, I feel like I want to make, uh, I'm interviewing a lot of people who don't get interviewed a lot. So it's not like someone who's just giving a sound bite to 30 reporters in a row. It's someone who's probably never been on the radio and wants to be on the radio, but is kind of nervous about it. So I feel like as few barriers as possible are helpful to me. So I don't wear headphones and I use a small recorder and I don't use an external mic. I just use a little built-in microphone on my recorder um, because the most important part of the sound is sort of them sounding comfortable and not like the perfect audio fidelity, which again, when you hear it in your car on I-35, you're gonna miss entirely anyway. That's so great. So. Let's, let's just uh, hear, this, hear, hear this ID from Kyle really quick. It's number one. 
Right now we're just off Center Street in downtown Kyle, Texas. The Kyle Chamber of Commerce and Visitors Bureau is housed in what used to be a train depot. I would say my desk is probably about, it couldn't be more than 30 feet from the railroad tracks. You know what? It actually is pretty good sound. <laughs> now that I hear it again. It's not it's bad like, at all. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty good. That's good. So, Sam, what about you? What, what lessons have you learned about composition over the years? Um, have you ever heard of Damien Gerardo? Anyone here? Damien Gerardo. It's like a fantastic songwriter, one of my favorites. I got to tour in a band he was with, or he was opening for us, actually. And he did this weird thing on this tour where he'd sing a line, he had two mics, he had this mic, and he had this other mic that had all this reverb and chorus on it, and he would sing the same words, but in this weird ass voice. And uh, <clears throat> he'd do it for every song, and I was like, I'll never forget, because I always think of what I learned, coming back to that, um, I've learned to think of music kind of instead of, when you're a musician, you're, you're presenting music in the spotlight. It is the center of the show. Whereas in film or sound design, it's not. It's kind of, it's like a mirror, which is kind of what Damien was doing. So <clears throat> learning to think of music as a mirror, um, starting, I've been really working hard last few years developing the idea of, of distance and placing, I'm obsessed with placing sound backstage, upstage, uh, like it sounds 20 feet away or 100 yards away or right in your face um, and all the things that go along with that and developing my own sort of vocab with that um, and how to sort of make the actor or the interviewee or whoever it is on stage, how to not interfere but just make them shine. And I feel like coming, when I come back to my own composition, it's given me this entire new three-dimensional way of, of, of conceiving of music, which is wonderful. That yeah. idea of sound design as a mirror, like that is really interesting. Talk just a little bit more about that idea well, that's, as a mirror. I think the, the only real value of, of any non-center stage, anything that's not in the center, but it's kind of, a, it has a mirror function. It's showing us who we are or it's presenting a certain point of view or a certain perception. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a way of thinking that they really don't teach you in music school, in composition school, although I love my teachers. Hey, if you're listening, guys. Um, but uh, it's like, yeah, um, a mirror. Does that make sense? It helps tell the story. It helps present characters. You know, usually the director always wants to put a spin on the character. How do they work in the, in the plot? And so music can be very subtle to clue the audience in or not or confuse them. Well, I do think, you know, it's interesting to think about like the aesthetics of what you're hearing and how you're hearing the human voice or how you're, how you're hearing a sound and what meaning is is embodied in those sounds, you know, or those aesthetics. It's like when you come to public radio, you definitely hear people talking at a certain pace that you're not going to hear on AM radio, AM sports radio, for example, you know. And, and when you speak about this idea of a mirror, it's really interesting because of all that is conveyed within sound that we're kind of unaware of uh, that trans transference of ideology or of set or of history or anything yeah yeah there's a lot of subconscious stored in sound the way we grew up with it um i always try to watch the film first and and decide before i do anything i try to decide on what is my group of instruments what am i using and i kind of have a rule of thumb i never want to use more instruments than characters. So if it's a small amount of characters, I try to keep it down to three or four instruments. Or if it's a big cast, then I can use a string orchestra like that. Uh, but um, I, I think having a knowledge of history and being able to fuse different things can really enlarge your palette and make you be able to say unique, complex things. 
Uh, yeah. Cool. Well, when I asked Neil Blumoff, the rabbi, and he went, what if, when he, what if, he, if he believes in God, he says, uh, I believe in the mirror and the void. So you're adding to his knowledge of what a mirror is. Wow. So good job. Um, okay, so let us, let's take some questions from the audience because I'm sure you guys have, have questions for these guys I can't even think of. Um, Amy, Ch or is Jack back there? Jack Anderson. Speaking of sound design, fantastic Jack Anderson. Go I'm ahead, just sir. curious. Uh, so how motivated or, um, yeah, motivated by the changes in technology are each of you when it comes to how you do your work? Um, I try to keep up to date with the latest plugins <laughs> and use them. Um, I'm learning. So when I first started, I was kind of a purist about, I'm going to hire a real orchestra. I'm going to get them in. We're going to rehearse, record. I don't care. We need 6,000 microphones and there's a mixing guy and rent the space. And Oh, is that how much it costs? Oh, my goodness. Like slowly I turned to, you know, I'm just going to try this sample library thing um learning to tweak it i can literally full pay anybody if it's a real orchestra or not and that leads to ethical questions um <laughs> that i am not gonna worry about right now <laughs> um i use it a lot and i try to mask it and make it sound authentic and real but uh i'm kind of the opposite of you in that rig usually because it has to be turned in yesterday so it's quick, it's nasty, it works. Um, yeah, yeah, it's amazing what, you know, you pull your film into your sound program, you look at it, you can look at the audio track and see where the spoken parts are, the gaps between the spoken parts. That's where you put your little clarinet. And uh, yeah, I use it a lot. I just like to point out that my, my weird ethical rules are very narrow. <laughs> they, they, they apply to the specific thing of a sonic ID about a sound. If I was, because I feel like that's um, not a work of fiction. If I was doing something where everyone knows we're making up the story, I'd be happily use sound effects. And I, and I do like if, when we do things like promos and stuff or um, you know, stuff where there, there's no expectation that it might be real. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I mean, I'm not like, Never use technology or, or fool people. It's not, it's not quite that severe. I'm totally fine with using a fake orchestra if need be. Uh, for me, technology-wise, I'm, you know, I don't really, it doesn't really apply to me that much, or maybe it should, but it, I don't allow it to. But I guess for me, where I've like, well, I noticed the most is what I was saying before about using a really small recorder. When I started doing this, I was using a portable DAT recorder, which is, that big, uh, and uh, you know, like an external mic about this size. It's just a, kind of a lot of stuff to carry around, and like I said before, it just kind of feels like a barrier. So I went from that to a smaller digital recorder to an even smaller digital recorder, and it, as long as I can get decent sound out of it, I just want like the the thing that puts the the less the the, the least amount of stuff between me and the person I'm talking to. For me, I'll just uh, chime in because, as Mike said, you know, it's us listening to something at the station. It's just me. So, like, so I do also a lot of podcasts for KUT and, um, and editing work as well. And the, it, it, new technology has allowed for a lot of different productions to be possible. So we can take something that would normally have to be two minutes long or seven minutes long and put it in a podcast that is 45 minutes, 48 minutes, and th there's no time barrier. So for me, the, the advances in technology have allowed uh, radio to um, develop into new areas that have expanded what it means to be an audio piece just because of the way that we can associate with time now, which is really, really exciting. So I think like, you know, technological advances really will change radio, um, I think really in a great way. But this, and the stuff we're talking about tonight is like, well, how do you maintain that connection to the audience no matter what the technological advances are, which I think is really, really exciting. But that's just my own personal take on it. Another question? Jack's coming around. Oh, yeah. 
Okay, thanks. Hi, um, so I am actually working on a podcast right now, and this is a question that I'm grappling with, which is um, a lot of music. Obviously, using music under narration, under words, you have to do it in podcasts or else it's super boring. Um, and my question is a lot of music carries cultural connotations, and how do you deal with that? And if you're writing about a specific culture in your, or an area of, say, Texas, and you want to be... Um, like accurate or respectful or reflective, accurately reflective, authentic with your music choices without stereotyping. Do you ever come across that where you're trying to choose music and it, there is a cultural element and you need to get that right? I have, but it was with a piece that I produced with a woman in Tanzania. And um, I... I was really interested, it was for the Secret Ingredient podcast that we did on seed exchange. And I wanted the music that is just heard for basically about 15 seconds of the podcast to be music from the region that she would probably listen to. And I talked to her about what I should use, what were people listening to, and just basically asked, you know, like, you know, what, what types of music are people listening to? What bands? What's cool? It ended up being, I think, a piece of like French music but it was something that they would know and associate with. Um, and I think it's something that you really have to choose piece by piece, you know, um, because, because you don't want to sound like you're completely out of touch and you want to do your research. And I think it's really, really important, you know. What about you guys? Have you? I, I agree with everything that you just said. And also I would say don't assume that you have to have music under everything. As... One of my pet peeves is when, uh, for a commercial or for a piece on the radio, there's just a music bed constantly under every time someone talks. It sounds like FM radio, which I know KUT is FM, but I mean like commercial <laughs> FM radio, you know, where it's like, we're afraid it's going to be boring. If, if it's boring without music under it, it's boring, you know? I'm sorry. <laughs> and, but I don't, I, no, I, don't, I don't mean that you're boring. I'm saying that, like, reconsider that you have to have music under it because that's not what people are coming there for. They're coming there for the content. Music sometimes is a kind of establishes great, and then you can kind of fade it out and let the voices take over. I think there's also a sort of an intersection. There's like an X in the middle. There's, things can be authentic, and then things can be stereotypes. And there's kind of a middle... What do they call those Venn diagrams where, like, the two circles, you know what I'm talking about? There's a part in the middle where you, it's a good pace. And I think you just develop a feel with that over time. But when you're young, like I'm very young, uh, it's, it's a good thing to ask someone older. Like, I always ask, if I'm lucky, there's a music editor on the film, and I say, is this really stereotyping there? Like, That'll fly. If the director's like, yes, or no, it's too cheesy, leave the, that's, I try to find someone who has, could. But I think you develop the instinct for that over time. Yeah. One thing that I will say about um, stereotypes in radio to be to listen out for and are accents. Because over the years in public radio, I've heard some really interesting conversations about not wanting people for p certain pieces because they don't sound like they're from that region, or we want somebody to really sound like they're a spectacle, you know? Um, I think that's very dangerous. So to, to, to just get somebody to speak kind of naturally and to use as much as you can. We didn't talk a lot about tracking or, or um, recording your own voice on these, but, like, but the way that you present people and their voices says a lot about the piece itself. And I think that's something to think about and talk about and consider whenever you're producing pieces because the idea of, oh, let's put this person in, they, they sound really crazy, or I'm from the Midwest and I know people used to come and do interviews with people. They'd always want people who were farmers and who spoke with accents to talk about politics during a certain race. And I think that those presentations are very, very dangerous. So it's something to think about when you're considering production. I'm very sorry if I made it sound like I was saying that you're producing something boring. I, I've, I've been feeling bad about that for the last three minutes. That's not what I meant. It's uh, sometimes you'll hear a piece that like goes on for like five minutes and there's a, just a steady music bed under it. And I feel like that's really grating. I'm just advised against possibly doing that. Uh, go ahead. 
<laughs> Go ahead. Another question. So um, when you use sound effects in music, um, I guess mainly sound effects, uh, do you usually make or record your own? Um, if so, like, how do you figure out what it, what exactly it is you're trying to get? Like, if you hear, if you imagine something in your head, how do you accurately create that? And and I'm sure you probably layer sounds and whatnot, but yeah, how do you go about finding those sounds? Do you prefer to record them? It's, yeah, kind of packed, but well, like like I've been saying, for me, like I I will, I prefer to record stuff if if I'm trying to tell a story about a specific sound, you know, um, I want to go and capture that sound. Um, if it's not that, if it's something like, you know, if we're doing like a promo and we want it to be kind of be funny, then um, I, I tend to probably err on the side of finding a sound effect that maybe doesn't sound completely realistic, but that's kind of like, you know, nudge, nudge, we're using a sound effect. Isn't that kind of funny? So broad, maybe a little cartoonish. Sometimes I will, I will err toward. Um, I don't do a lot of. You probably in like theater and film have to do like real sound effect stuff, not like the kind of monkey shines I'm doing over at KUT. Do you want to, <laughs> monkey probably signs, should talk about this. Monkey shines. Um, yeah, I definitely try to get on the canvas before I go near the computer what I wanted to try to imagine, and then if it's. It usually involves layering three or four tracks. Anything beyond three or four, like, is probably too much, even though it's super fun. Um, I, I use the, I use a lot of uh, EQ. I use so much EQ, like especially the low pass and high pass, um, because I feel like we're all we all grew up in the womb, right? And I think you can hear like the sound if you imagine the sound of what it sounds like in there and you go from there like uh you can touch people pretty deeply with sound doing using those filters um i try to pair things i'm it's getting technical now i'm just like <laughs> i don't know if you ever use sine wave generation or like sim just real simple synthesis he's sine, into sine waves go sine for waves it. they can fatten things really nicely um so yeah, cross-fading, EQing, and sine wave generation is really pulls it together for me. The shark sound effect, yeah. So that was very, very simple. Just all it was was white noise, just like like when your radio is off. I filtered it, cut the highs, cut the lows. I put a fade on it, and it actually goes from one, two, three to the next speaker. So it sounds like it's moving. But that's all it is. It's just noise filtered and crossfade from speaker to speaker. But it sounds like a huge marble ball rolling through your soul, right? But or a shark. What is that Vin Vendors film about sound design? Is it Brazil? Has anyone seen this? Where they're doing foley all over Brazil? I've lost everybody. Brazil is a, the, is, a, is a different movie. It, okay, yeah. But I'm not sure what, what you're talking Terry Gilliam, about. I don't, right? I don't, yeah, Terry, Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam, yeah. And it's Never not mind. about Brazil or about sound design. Yeah. Our next show is on memory. Remembering, <laughs> <laughs> remembering. I'm pregnant, leave me alone. So, <laughs> another question. Okay. Um, this more for Sam than, than anyone else. In terms of, well, not your own work, right here. Oh, hey, there you are, there you are. Sorry. Here's an interesting example of sound design. I could have sworn you back there because of where the speakers are located. Okay. Not your own work, but either past or present, whose work have you admired most? Oh, man, that's a hard question. Um, so I grew up loving things like Bruckner. Everybody hates Bruckner because... He was apparently associated with Nazis and stuff like that. But his, his melodies, and I don't know, I'm a Jew, so I shouldn't love it, but I love Bruckner. Um, I, lo I love all the classical big names. But then I, I also grew up completely obsessed with Charlie Parker and John Coltrane, saxophone players. So melody is where I learned everything about contour from those guys. Um, and then when it came to soundscape, probably Johnny Greenwood, who is a the guitar player from Radiohead, the rock band. He also scores films and he thinks musically he's, he's very three-dimensional, kind of where I started feeling that. Um, and then Jerry Goldsmith's film scores to me are just 
they're like um, they're so muscular and strong and fantastic. Structurally, they're a huge influence for me. Um, and then uh, I, I thought this question would come up, and I tried to write them down. <laughs> and uh, as of recently, maybe Alexander Desplat, the, the, he, he's a French composer that does uh, a lot of the, the most recent films coming out of Hollywood. He's really good and very minimal, but really, really witty and fun. Um, I could go on forever, but those are, I hope that answers you some, yeah. We have time for one more question. Um, I was gonna ask here, I'm over here. <laughs> um, when you're in between jobs or assignments, how do you kind of fine tune your skill set? Or, you know, you are always listening. I mean, what is it that you do? Do you self-assign? Do you, does that make sense? <laughs> this is not a question for me. I've been working at KUT since I was a teenager. I would love to be between jobs for, for like one solid month at some point. It's never, has not happened. So, no, no clue. Oh, Sam? <laughs> um, I'm usually changing diapers. No, between, between jobs. Um, so, I try to, so the thing that composers do is, is the, the ethically right thing to do is to, is to write, always whether there's money or not, whether there's a commission or not, you, you just write your music. That's kind of what you do. So most of the time I'm struggling to find time just to do the work that, I've, that I'm on contract for. But if, God forbid, I do get a small moment, I try to sketch um, new things for, say, harp quartet or f like some strange combination of instruments like tambourine and dolphin or... Um, Something that requires, you know, a challenge. Or I'll be trying to uh, write, like right now I'm sketching an opera and I'm trying to push it to Austin Opera. I've had one meeting with them trying to, come on guys, check it out. So going for the dream, the big, the big kahuna. What is it? Yeah. Kahuna. So tell us, as we wrap up, um, you know, what is, what is a project that you would just really love to work on, speaking of the big kahuna? Like what... What type of project and problem would you like to solve or work on or you think would be really, really fun as far as sound design? Well, I'm really loving this work that I've been doing that I played you all because I'm, it, it allows me to put sounds. There's one scene that's just a mosquito. That's all it is. And I'm working on making it realistically fly around all the way around the room. And I love that. I love that. Um, but the big kahuna, I would say, for most of us composers, it's really writing an opera, something that uses the full orchestra, the full voice, the acting, the, all the scenery, and, and finding a story that, that, we, that relates to us as realistic or as weird as possible. So for me, yeah, writing opera would be something great. Mike, what about you? I'd write an opera, for sure. <laughs> and what else, you know? Let's do uh, it together. <laughs> sure, let's do it. Uh, I'm not sure that I have a good answer for that, but as I've been listening to Sam tonight, I've been kind of jealous of the idea of being able to create something and have some control over, or even just knowledge of what it's gonna sound like when people hear it. Like, you, you know where the speakers are. You can place them where you want them to be. You know, you're not just creating stuff and then just assuming people will hear it at some point. Yeah, but you're getting paid. That's a really good point, so. <laughs> I guess I'm living the dream, I'm done, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Well, uh, so Marijuana opens October 10th yes, here on the UT campus. That's so right. please, everyone, go and check that out. You can hear Mike's work every single day with the Arts Eclectic, Get Involves. He recorded or he put together the Two Guys on Your Head introduction, also the which is fantastic. And uh, the best part of that show. Every best time. part of that show, baby. <laughs> Also vote for Two Guys on Your Head for Best Local Podcast. So in the Austin Chronicle of Best of Austin Awards. Just a little quick plug. Um, and you can hear his work whenever he does a, a story core. Those air on Monday mornings. Um, get involved. All of that cool stuff. 
car spots, and every now and then I will talk him into helping me produce a documentary, which we air whenever we can. So check it out for sure, and um, please, if you have questions for these guys, just ask, and you can always email KUT. We're hopefully going to be doing a boot camp on audio production um, in 2019, so if you're interested, please sign up for that when it comes out. And thank you so much for coming out tonight. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to A Views and Brews, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas, for KUT Radio. You'll find a complete archive of all of our Views and Brews in the iTunes store, or go to KUT.org for more information. Thanks for listening.